you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be continuing our series through prayer. We'll be in verse 4 again today. We'll call it 4C. This third section of, of verse 4. And as you know, we have we has, uh, really been focusing as a body really heavily on prayer. Very, very heavily on prayer. It's been a focus and it's been felt by many that this is an area of opportunity or an area for growth that is much needed within our body. Uh, and so we decided to slow down, like slow way down as we went through these first uh, 13 verses in the chapter 11 of Luke and as we go through the Lord's Prayer. And the goal is, is that through the moving of the Holy Spirit, that, Lord willing, we would see a very significant increase in our prayer life. A very significant increase in our prayer life. If you came on Wednesday night, I think you saw some of the beginnings of what that would look like. It was an awesome time Wednesday of prayer as a body. As we came corporately before the Lord to give adoration, to confess our sins, our shortcomings, to give thanks. And to plead with him to do things that we can't do on our own. It was, it was an awesome time. And it's our hope that that would increase both in the body and, in, and as individuals. Meaning that there would be an increase in the frequency and the glory to God that's given in our prayer life. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. It's, it's one thing to pray often. Okay? It's one thing to pray often, but it's another thing altogether to pray rightly. It's another thing altogether to pray rightly in a way that honors God, in a way that Jesus t is teaching us here to pray. And if we remember so far, what we've seen from this passage is that, is that prayer is to be frequent, it is to be kingdom-focused, and it is ultimately it is to be dependent on the Lord. So it is frequent, kingdom-focused, and ultimately it is about being absolutely dependent or needy Upon God, finding help from a holy and righteous Father. Very holy and righteous Father. And so today we zero in really on, again, on verse 4, on our final request that Jesus is teaching us here. Our final request of God is very needy people, and it's our need for his protection. Our need for his protection. And so, again, a rich prayer life is about frequency with a proper view of whom we are approaching. It's of whom we are approaching and a desperate neediness, a very desperate neediness that he would provide all that we need in order to accomplish his purposes, not our own. And what we need, Jesus is telling us what we need here. We need, we need bread. We need forgiveness. And we need protection from sin. This is what we need from our Holy Heavenly Father in order to accomplish His purposes, that His kingdom would be central. And so our main point this morning, if you have a handout, and if you don't, there's some in the back table there by, uh, underneath the communion cup picture back there. Um, and there's, we're going to be, going, again, going to a couple of different scripture references, and those are on the back of the handout as well. But our main point this morning is this, is that prayer is oftentimes for war. Prayer is oftentimes for war, and we need God's help. We need God's help. 
Sometimes prayer is what, what John Piper calls it, is a, is a wartime walkie-talkie. It's like a wartime walkie-talkie. It, it, it's for protection. It's for protection and for sending in help in great times of need. It's for, it's for ways that we can seek protection when we feel the enemy is right upon us. When we feel the attacks of the enemy are all around us, when we feel that we are under attack, when temptation is raging, and we prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie for God to send in the troops and need help. And so let's do that. Let's do that now as we go to God's word this morning. Let's go to God and ask for help. Let's go to God and ask for help as, as needy people. As needy people. Because what we need is our hearts softened. Chances are that's been a long week and can create some hardness of heart. We need our hearts softened today. We need our priorities reorganized. Maybe they've been a little out of whack. We need our priorities reorganized. And we need our wills aligned with His. So let's go to God and ask for that this morning. Father, we love you. And we are needy people. God, I need you. I need you, God. Because I cannot, I cannot please you apart from your work in me. I cannot live the life you've called me to live apart from your work in me. I cannot proclaim with any ounce of effectiveness your word without your Holy Spirit. No one here, God, can hear anything that you need to tell them without your help. We need ears, God. We need eyes. Free us from all distractions this morning. Magnify Christ this morning. Be worshipped this morning through the preaching and the hearing of your word. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So looking at this last little section of the prayer, verse 4, I believe that if we, if we understand this part correctly, if we get this part correct, it will affect how we pray. It will affect how we pray, but not only how we pray, how often we pray. It will affect, if we get this, it will affect how needy we feel. And therefore, how often we pray. So, to understand this correctly, we must seek to know that what Jesus meant when he said, lead us not into temptation. So what does Jesus mean when he says lead, and what does he mean by the word temptation? Those are the two kind of key words sticking out. So we want to know the what. What do you mean, Jesus? It will affect. It will affect 
how and how often we pray. Secondly, why did Jesus feel that this was something we should daily ask God for? Not as a one and done prayer, but something that is a part of asking for daily bread, daily forgiveness, and daily protection. Why did he feel that this was important for us to ask the Father for in our daily prayer life? To start, the word lead, it means kind of what you might think it means. It means to kind of carry in or to bring in. It's very active. It's very active. It's not a very, it's not a very passive word at all. God is sovereign, and that's the point. God is sovereign, and, and that's the point. He, he is leading us. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so right off the bat, Jesus is saying, recognize this. Recognize that God is sovereign, and he leads and he directs our steps. Submit to that first and foremost. Now the question is, is where is God leading us, or where are we asking him to lead us? And in the text it says, not into temptation. Now this word temptation comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is pirasmos. It's pirasmos. <laughs> I'm no Greek scholar. Okay? But, like most Greek words, it can take on a lot of different meanings depending on the context. Depending on the context. It can, it can take on the meaning of something very positive, like a test or a trial. Or it can take on something very negative, like we see here. We see this in a positive sense in, in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, or your pirasmos, for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that, at the, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So this testing should produce happiness. It should produce rejoicing, something positive in our life. And so it can mean something positive, this word. Or it can mean something negative, as it's translated here, temptation. Which means to attempt to make someone sin, or it's an attempt to, to destroy someone's faith. And so now, most of the time, that word temptation is, is merely just that. It's just an attempt. It's just an attempt. And to, so to be tempted is not to sin. It is negative in that someone is trying to tempt you to sin, but it's not a sin to be tempted. We know that because Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. And we know that Jesus never sinned. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, lead us not into testing? This can't be right. Right? This can't be right. We're to consider it all joy when we encounter various pirasmos. We're supposed to consider it a very joyful thing. Again, in 1 Peter 1, it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various pirasmos, various trials. Rejoice. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So it's, it's for the tested genuineness of our faith. So it's a good thing. 
tests and trials, these are very good things in our life. These are wonderful things. They're for our sanctification. They're for your joy. Hear me when I say this. Trials, testings, sufferings, tests, they are for your joy found in his glory. Okay, As we suffer well, or as our faith withstands the test. So it's a good thing. It is then, it is then that God's worth is magnified in our lives. Tests are good. So Jesus can't mean lead us not into trial. And it can't mean lead us not into testing. How about as it's translated? How about as temptation? Well, that brings some hurdles as well. That brings a few hurdles as well. Lead us not into temptation. James 1.13 tells us, let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God. Hmm. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So a little bit of a hurdle there, right? If, if God never, if God never uh, leads us into temptation, we should not think that we are asking God to lead us into something his character would not allow. So why would we even need to ask for this? The key, the key here to understanding that this, what this word temptation or pirasmos means in this, in this context is that sometimes it carries with it the idea of not just being tempted, but succumbing to that temptation. It carries with it the idea of actually succumbing to that temptation. In fact, that verse we just read in James tells us that God cannot be tempted, and yet Jesus, being fully God, was tempted. So James, what, he, what James means here is that he was not tempted unto sin. He was not tempted unto falling to it. He did not succumb to it. He was not successfully tempted. God cannot be successfully tempted. Paul uses it in a very similar sense in 1 Thessalonians 3, in verse 5, he says this, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent out are sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so Paul's basically insinuating that, that the tempter would have tempted you to the point of failure, to the point of succumbing to it. Therefore, my visit or my work in you would have been in vain. His fear is that the, the temptation would have resulted in them making a shipwreck of their faith. So that is the what of this passage. That is the what of this passage. Father, lead me not into a place. Lead me not into a place or an occasion where I will fall to temptation. Father, I, I don't want to sin against you. That's the what of this. And so with that understanding of what Jesus wants us to pray for, it's important that we seek to understand the why behind it. The why behind it. Must understand that Jesus does not just want us to know what to pray for, but with what heart to pray with. With what heart to pray with. What is the heart of a believing child of God? What is at the heart of a believing child of God? What is the heart that Jesus is instructing that we have here? We should not desire to just have a checklist of things to pray for. Okay, God, just tell me what to pray for so I can just kind of check it off the list and complete my day and then move on with my day. No, no, no. We should desire to have the same mind and heart of Christ. 
That's what we're seeking here. We want to know, okay, Jesus, you're telling us what to pray for, but I really want to know what's the mind and heart behind it? What's the mind and heart behind it? What is Jesus saying that I should know in my mind and I should feel in my heart as I pray for help from my loving and providing Father? Point one is this. We are at war. We are at war. We must have a mind that understands that we are at war and a heart that feels the weight of it. We are at war, so be alert. We are at war, so be alert. There has been a war raging since the fall of man. There has been a war raging since the fall of man, a war that Christ ultimately won. Christ ultimately won it at the cross. That's the gospel. But the battles still rage. The battles still rage. And when you gave your life to Christ, when you received the gospel, when you received Christ as Lord, when you submitted to him as Lord, you enlisted. You enlisted in this war forever. You enlisted to bring God glory. That's the mission with your life. You enlisted to bring him glory. And then when you do this, when you fulfill your purpose of bringing God glory, when you do exactly what you have been called to do, you actually put a humongous target on your back. You put a very humongous target on your back. Peter wrote, speaking of suffering, speaking of trial, he wrote in 1 Peter 5.8, he said, Be of sober spirit. Be of sober spirit and be on alert. He said, be on the alert. Your adversary, you have one. He hates you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to destroy your faith. And that's exactly what he desires to do. That is the main goal of the enemy, is to destroy your faith. To actually lure you, to lure you away from trusting in God and putting your faith in someone or something else. That is Satan's mission. And his, his tactics, his tactics are to use both easy times and hard times. His tactics are to use both easy and hard times. He can use the riches of this life to lure you away. Or he can use the loss of everything you own to lure you away. He can give you everything your little carnal heart desires to lure you away. Or he can take away everything your heart desires to lure you away. But that's his goal. That's his goal, to lure you away. And so the mind at war, the mind that is at war and the heart that is alert is vigilant. It is vigilant. It is vigilant to see and understand that every circumstance Every moment-by-moment moment circumstance throughout the day, both hard and easy, they are both a test and a temptation. Every circumstance that is brought to you every day is both a test and a, and a temptation. All circumstances are tests from God. They're tests from God, like fire refining you to test the genuineness of your faith. But they are also an opportunity for the enemy they're also an opportunity for the enemy to show you something prettier 
than Jesus in those moments. For example, for example, many of us, many of us in this room have been through some form of great loss. Great loss. Loss of health. Loss of a job. Loss of a parent. Loss of a child. Loss of a home. Some of you are struggling with that this morning. God's test. God's test in those moments of loss is, is this. His test is this, is that in the pain, in the pain, will you be sorrowful but always rejoicing? In the pain, will you be sorrowful but always rejoicing? Perplexed but never crushed. Sad but full of hope. Will you, will you trust me in this? Will you trust me in this? Will you remember that I am your God, that I am your Father, and I am for you, I am not against you? Even in the midst of great loss. In the pain, in the pain, will you seek to plant deeper roots of faith in him? Or will you run from him? Will you hide from him? Will you come in the moments of loss, in the moments of sadness, will you come to the fountain of living water and drink from the gospel and be satisfied, showing the worth and value of the gospel over what it is you lost? Or will you doubt the goodness of God? That's the test. That's the test. Now, it's important to understand the test. The test is not for God. It's for you. God knows what you're going to do. He knows the, this, the level of sanctification that you're at. He knows what kind of faith you're going to demonstrate in the moment. It's not for him. The tests reveal nothing to God. He knows everything. The tests are designed to reveal to you where you are lacking in your faith. The tests are for you to see where your desires are. This is real life, isn't it? This is real life. When, when you're in the loss, when you're in the, minute, in, the, in the middle of trial, in the middle of a testing, and what you say you believe finally gets rubbed up to what you actually believe. It's when the rubber meets the road. And what you actually believe about God comes to the surface. Our sin and our desires and all that we have inside of us are like dirt at the bottom of a water bottle. And when you shake the water bottle, the dirt rises to the top, and now you can see it. But now you can also get it out. Now you can also get it out. Tests and trials are for you, for your sanctification. But in those trials and in those moments, it's also an opportunity for Satan's temptation. It's also an opportunity for Satan's temptation. In that same loss, you're going to feel and hear things like, that thing you lost, the person you lost, it meant everything to you. It meant everything to you, didn't it? Didn't you love your home? 
Don't you love your parents? Don't you love your child? How could God do this to you? How could God do this to you? Like, forget all the other stuff that God's ever done in your life and shrink down the size of all your problems to just this one thing and remember how terrible this is. Nothing ever goes right. Nothing ever goes right. You need a drink. You need to unwind. You need to decompress. You need to be, actually, you need to be alone. No one wants to see you like this. Get away from everybody. No one wants to see you like this. That Bible has nothing for you in it. You won't even understand it. Where would you even start? Pray. Does he even care? Look at what he took from you. Look at what he took from you. Your prized possession. What you love most. God took from you. How could he? What about small events? What about small events? Like when your boss yells at you? Hurts your feelings? Your spouse hurts your feelings with cutting words? Your car won't start? You lose your phone? Your kids just won't learn? The government does something you don't like? The list goes on and on and on. And so it's, the question is, in those moments, they're all tests. And they're all opportunities for temptation. And it's not just painful events. It's not just painful events, but big, wonderful events that happen in your life as well. Like you get a raise. You get a raise. You get a promotion. Test. Will you give me the glory for your blessing? Or will you say, look at what I have done. Look at what I have built for myself. Like Nebuchadnezzar did. Will you still see me, God is saying, will you still see me as better than what it is I have just given you? Will you still see me as something as better than what I have just given you? Will you use the money I've given you, the blessing I've given you? Will you use what I gave you for my kingdom or for yours? That's the test. Temptation. You earn that money. You earn that money, and you know what? You need more stuff. You need more stuff. You need more vacations. You need more shoes. You know what? You know what? Actually, finally, your soul can be at ease. Finally, you've gotten everything you ever wanted, and now you can just be content. Maybe, maybe you can even live, live like so-and-so who you've been watching so, for so long. Maybe you can actually live like them now. Then you'll be happy. You'll be as happy as they are. Each and every one of these situations, good, bad, hard, easy, blessing, loss, they're all tests and opportunities for temptation. And so we must be alert. We must be alert because we have an enemy that wants to attack at any given moment. We must be alert. We must be vigilant to see that today, like starting right now, after church, before lunch, Every moment of the day, you're going to have a thousand opportunities. A thousand opportunities to trust God or trust self. A thousand opportunities to be satisfied in God or to seek satisfaction in the world. A thousand opportunities throughout today and the rest of the day, each and every day. And so do we come to God and say, Lord, 
Let me see every moment of today. Do we come to him and say, do, Lord, let me see every moment of today as an opportunity to glorify you in it. Make me alert to the attack of the enemy and to his lies. Open my eyes to the lies and, and the deceptions of the enemy in these moments. Do not let any good thing, God, and do not let any hard thing, God, that happens to me today rob me of my faith and defame your name. It's part of the heart of this prayer. It's part of the heart of this prayer. Point two is this. Point two is this, is that we must be alert of the attack of the enemy, but we, but we also must be aware. We must be aware, namely self-aware. The heart of this prayer is one of self-awareness. Yes, we must be alert to the attacks of the enemy from, the, from outside, but we must be aware, most importantly, of the depravity of our own flesh. We must be aware of the depravity of our own flesh. It is a humble, the heart of this prayer is a humble self-awareness that realizes really just how helpless we are against the attacks of the enemy. So we're not only alert, but aware that we are helpless. We are absolutely helpless to defend ourselves. We need help. We must be self-aware. We must be self-aware of our lacking I can't overstate this. Of our lacking in our ability to fight sin. If we approach this life alone, if we approach this life alone, or if, if you believe that you're okay to kind of fight sin on your own, or maybe you don't even think about it. Maybe you don't even think about whether or not I need to fight sin today, then guess what? You are going down. You're going down. You will lose. You will fail. You will take the bait every time. You will. That is who we are. Like, think about it. Do you know your flesh? Do you know your desires? Do you know your propensity for selfishness and self-gain and self-fulfillment? Do you understand that? Your enemy does. Oh, your enemy knows you like the back of his hand. And he hates you. And he knows exactly what your flesh loves. He knows exactly what your flesh loves. And in fact, the only weapon he has against you is your fleshly desires. The only weapon the enemy has against you is your fleshly desires. James 1. You look in the back of your handout, it's there. James 1, verses 12 through 15. It says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. So there it is again. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But verse 14, listen to this. But each one is tempted when he is carried or dragged away and enticed by what? His own lust. Which is just another word for ruling desire. The word means ruling desire. So you're tempted when he is carried or dragged away and enticed by his own ruling desire. If we're not desperately praying for God's help, our fleshly desires will rule the day. 
They will rule the day. James continues. He says, and then when that desire, when that ruling desire has conceived or has captured you, has captured you, it gives birth to sin. It is the desires that give birth to sin. It is the overruling desires that give birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so Satan, Satan is, your enemy is always trying to cook up sin in your life. But the only ingredient he has is your selfish, fleshly desires. That's all he has to work with. That's it. Satan, Satan cannot make you sin. He cannot make you sin. He doesn't have really anywhere near that kind of power. He doesn't near the kind of power to make you sin. But what he can do is show you what your carnal heart already wants. He can just hold up to you what you already want. And if you want it with a ruling desire, guess what? He'll take it every time. All he has to do is show you what you want. He's opportunistic. He's opportunistic in the moment-by-moment times of our life. He's opportunistic to constantly point us and our eyes and our desires to the, our flesh desires, to the world. And it's when these willing desires are conceived, that's when it gives birth to sin, which damages our walk with the Lord, it damages our testimony to the world, and it hinders us from fulfilling our mission and our calling. That's the goal. What can Satan do to you except that? If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. He knows the Bible. But what he can do is take you out of the game. He can take you out of the mission. He can hinder your walk. He can make you depressed. And stop running the race. He can slow you down. But he only can use your fleshly desires to do it. He can't make you sin. But what he means for evil, in those moments, God means for good. God means for good. God means to use every moment-by-moment test to make us more like Christ. So the joke's on him. The joke's on him. He does this through the revealing of our fleshly desires in the moments, in the trials, in the testing. And as we get those moment-by-moment trials, and as we start to see our fleshly desires flare up, it is then that we can then confess them to the God, and then by the power of His Spirit, kill them. We can confess our desires. We can confess that I don't desire you as I should. That is sin, God. I don't like it. By your Spirit, Lord, kill those desires. Kill them. It's violent. It's a violent, wartime, vigilant attitude towards your fleshly desires and your sin. Romans 8 says this. This is where I get that from. Romans 8 says this, 13 says, that those who live by the flesh will die. War. This is violent. This is death we're talking about. This is life or death. Those who live by the flesh will die, but those who by the Spirit put to death Wartime vigilance. They put to death the deeds of the flesh. They will live. I believe that Jesus is calling us to make war. 
In this portion of the prayer, in this portion of the Lord's Prayer, he's saying, make war, but not just with the enemy, but on your own sin, on your own fleshly desires. And so being aware of our utter helplessness, being aware of our utter helplessness and dependence on God for his protection against sin, we are being instructed in this moment to make war. And Jesus is saying that prayer is your ultimate weapon. So use it. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. Know that you need God's protection. Lord, lead us not into a situation for my fleshly desires to rule me, but may your spirit rule my desires. May your spirit rule my desires. Point three. We are at war, so be filled. Be filled with His Spirit. We are at war, so be filled with His Spirit. Anytime we've ever had a victory over sin, anytime you've had a victory over sin, anytime I've had a victory over sin, it has been and only been by the power of the Spirit. It has been by the power of the Spirit and Scripture defines that as walking by the Spirit or walking by faith or being filled with the Spirit. But I know that a lot of times when we, when we say that word, we kind of say it kind of somewhat sort of understanding what it means. Like, what? yeah, walk by the Spirit. What do you mean? Just let him do it. I think we should understand this. It's key to fighting sin. It's key to living on mission. It's key to fulfilling our purpose and our calling. So to be led by the Spirit or to walk by the Spirit is essentially what we are instructed to do here or to ask for here. So in other words, Father, by your Spirit, lead me not into idolatry. So we're dealing with idolatry. We're asking for the Spirit to work. To help us better understand this, the idea of being filled with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, I want to look at a few passages to help us better understand the heart of this prayer. Again, on the back of your handout, you'll see 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 14. And in the context of this, he's speaking of Israelites who constantly were falling to temptation. They had the oracles of God. They had the, the teachings of Moses. And they still fell into all kinds of sin, grumbling, and idol worship. And so Paul warns the Corinthians. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Again, that's kind of the heart of this prayer. That's the heart of this prayer, is that Lord, lead, lead us not into temptation. It's a humble cry for help. It's, it's, it's a cry to take heed, lest I fall. It continues, verse 13. No temptation, same word, Peter Asmos, no temptation has overtaken you but such is common to man, and God is faithful. This is encouraging, I hope. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This is God's promise to us. This is something we can cling to in any moment-by-moment -moment opportunity that God will provide a way of escape. That's his character. That's his love for you. 
That's what, he, that's what he does. He's there, he hears us, and he helps us. It's his faithful character to help us. He wants to help us. Why? Because he is glorified as the helper of those who need him, of those who recognize their need of him. Do you need him? Ask yourself, do I need God to help me with my sin? Do I mean that? It'll be evident in your prayer life. However you answer that question, it'll be evident in your prayer life. Now, verse 14. It says, therefore, since God, since God will provide a way of escape, verse, verse 14 says this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There it is. There's your answer. Flee from idolatry. Paul sums up all of sin right here as idolatry. The ruling desire of the heart, the thing that you believe will satisfy you most is exactly what you worship. The thing that you believe will satisfy you most, bring you contentment, that is what you worship. And it's God's desire for you to when you are tempted to believe that lie, that you have a way of escape. In the moment by moment. It's his desire that you would have the way of escape when you are tempted to believe that lie. When you are tempted to let that lie conceive a desire in your heart and give birth to sin, he wants to give you a way of escape a way to flee, and a way to kill that desire and to worship him instead of that idol. In that moment, how does he do that? How does he do that? How does he give you escape from fleshly desires? Turn back again with me to Romans 8, or just move up on your sheet a little bit. I'm going to read this again. Okay, verse 10. It says, If in Christ... And this is how he does this, okay? If in Christ, or if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it's a big if, if the spirit of Jesus uh, who was raised from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's God's spirit in you. It's God's spirit in you that will give you an escape. Verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. Listen to this. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who puts to death the deeds of the body? You do. How? By the Spirit. You do it by the Spirit. Meaning that there is a living, holy Spirit in you if you are in Christ. It's not a metaphor. It's reality. It's reality. Jesus calls him our helper. He calls him our helper, our, our parakletos, one who comes alongside us, who intercedes for us, who helps us. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that we are to be filled. That's a command for you to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Like the way a drunkard is controlled by wine, you are to be controlled by the Spirit. This is something we are commanded to do, which means that we are to actively submit to the Spirit. That means that we are actively to submit to the Spirit for Him to work in us and to help us. When He is helping us, that's when we are able to flee temptation. 
When the Spirit is helping us, that is how we are able to kill the desires of the flesh. Now, you might be thinking, you're begging the question, Matt. How does he do that? What does the Spirit do? I want to know. Tell me why. Okay, I get it. I got to use the Spirit. But what does that mean? What does that mean? How does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit help us specifically? Look at John 15. Look at the way Jesus described the helper when he would come. John 15, 26 says this. Jesus says, When the helper comes, I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. Here it is. Here's the role of the Spirit in helping us. He says, He will testify about me. The Spirit will testify about Christ to you in those moments. This is the Spirit's overarching purpose. This is the overarching purpose and role of the Spirit of God residing in all believers is to testify, to put on display the glory of Jesus Christ to you. To be filled with the Spirit or to be controlled by the Spirit or to walk by the Spirit These are all synonyms for submit to the Spirit as He leads you to Christ. As He leads you to the glory of Christ. As He leads you to who He is. As the Spirit leads you to what Jesus has done for you in His life, in His death, and His resurrection. He leads you to the gospel. And as He does this, this is beautiful. This is what the Spirit does. Okay, listen. As He does this, He illumines to you. He puts on display the amazing grace and love and pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ on you and the beauty of who he is. And then everything else vanishes. Nothing else matters anymore. Isn't that awesome? It's submitting to the Spirit. It's submitting to his pulling you to the scriptures, pulling you into prayer, pulling you to God, pulling you to Christ and say, look and believe the gospel and that sin, that lustful desire that you love so much, you won't love it as much anymore. Just follow my lead and look to Christ. That's his job. That's what he loves to do. And when he does this, your desires begin to change. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Has anyone in here ever had such a strong urge for sin that now this seems like silliness to you? Years later, you can look back and say, man, I was so enslaved, it felt like, by that sin. But now, now when I think of it, it, it kind of disgusts me a little bit. You think you did that? You didn't do that. The Spirit did that in you. He pointed you to Christ. The gospel was now more beautiful than whatever this offered. That's how you conquer sin. You begin to desire more of this beautiful Jesus that he is showing you. You begin to desire him more. And then the power of temptation, which again is your lustful desires, the power over temptation, the power over the desires of the flesh is to desire Christ. That's the power over temptation, is to desire Christ. And it is the Spirit who does that in you who shows you Christ in the gospel, in his word, as you pray, and as you submit yourself to the Spirit in these ways, 
you'll see Christ. You will see Christ as more beautiful than anything you could ever lose or gain in this world. Let me say that again. I don't know that that means something. As he illumines Christ to you, he will become more precious to you than anything that you could lose or gain in this world. Anything. That's important. You remember James 1? Remember James 1? We just read it. Verse 14. He says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or ruling desires. Listen, if you didn't have any fleshly desires, and we all do, we all have them, and we're not going to be rid of them until we're with him in eternity one day. But think for a moment that if you had no fleshly desires, all you desired was Christ, Satan would have no power over you. None. Why do you think Jesus in his humanity was able to succumb to the temptations or not succumb to the temptations? He had a ruling desire to please the Father. His ruling desire to please the Father trumped every human desire he ever had. There's no contest. It was no contest. If you had no ruling desires, Satan would have zero power. Your fleshly desire is your greatest threat, and it's the only thing the enemy has to work with. It's the only thing he can do to draw you away from the Lord. It's your ruling desire that he uses to lure you away. But suppose for a moment that in any given circumstance, or in any given moment, that just like Christ, your ruling desire was for him. Imagine if your ruling desire was for Jesus in those moment by moments, it was for him to please him, to love him, to walk with him, to obey him, the one that gave himself for you. If that was your ruling desire, then Satan would have nothing to work with. Essentially, you wouldn't even be tempted at all. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, we have that to look forward to, but we have that also in this life. if We submit to the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in us, that it is what the Spirit does in us. Again, He illumines Christ. He satisfies our desires and destroys the beauty of whatever it is that is enticing you away from Him. He destroys it. And so the Spirit is our only hope for our fight against sin and our desires against the flesh. We are fully dependent on Him to make Jesus as beautiful as He is in our eyes. So we pray. That's why we pray. Confession is reactive. Confession is reactive to the sin in our life. This prayer is proactive. This prayer is proactive. Okay? We desire to see Christ as better than returning evil for evil. Someone makes a sharp word at you, Jesus is better than returning evil for evil. He's better than getting back. Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than comfort. Jesus is better than pornography, better than our career, better than family, better than anything, better than ministry. He's better. He's better than anything good or evil. He's just better. So Jesus is desiring us to look to him and see who he is. But we need eyes to see it. So we pray. We pray. We wage war every morning, every day. 
We get on our knees and we, and we wage war in our, with our greatest weapon, prayer. We pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Our mind and our heart are crying out to him to keep us from sinning against my Savior. Like, Lord, Lord, I recognize that today. Okay, listen. Lord, I recognize that today I will encounter situations big and small. I will encounter situations today big and small that will be a test. A test that you want to use for my good and my sanctification. But I also know that Satan desires for my faith to be destroyed. So help me to be alert today, Lord. Help me to be alert of the attack of the enemy who wants to destroy my faith. Lord, help me to be aware of my utter dependence upon you to survive the schemes of the, develop, of the devil. I can't do it on my own. And Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Give me power, the very power that raised Christ from the dead, and shine in my heart the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and in the gospel that I may love him more, treasure him more than anything in this world. Anything that I'm afraid to lose or long to have. I know for me that when my mind and heart are filled with the truth of Christ, there's no temptation that can take me away from him in those moments. Do we pray like this, though? Do we pray like this, day in, day out? Do we come to God daily for this kind of help? The evidence, the evidence of a heart that thinks, I got this, is one that does not pray. The evidence of someone who feels like, I don't need God's help, or I don't really think about my sin much, is that you don't pray. We don't see how desperate we are for God's help here. But remember, remember you being in the image of God and then also being born again into his likeness of his son, this means that there's going to be a barrage of enemy attack waiting for you every single day. Like every day. A lot of attack. Like you have no idea how much he's coming for you. And he's a big enemy. He's an enemy that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. He knows the human heart. He knows the human condition. And he's taken down men and women much mightier than you. Much mightier than you. He has the power at his, at his disposal to support your lustful desires or take them away. And you think you can go against this enemy on your own. What will you fight him with? Your wit? Your willpower? No, we must, we must be a people of prayer. We must be a church of prayer. Do we think that we as a body of Christ can go and do anything of any eternal value with the enemy like that without prayer? We will go down. We will go down. Do not go at this alone. It's my encouragement to you. Do not go at this alone. Seek the help. Seek the help of your loving Father. He loves you, and he will give you the Spirit to illumine Christ if you ask him. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that you have given us your spirit. Thank you, God, that you have given us a spirit, a helper, who longs to show us Christ. May we submit. May we submit to the spirit. That we may be, that you may put Christ on display. Give us eyes, O oh God, to see Christ and his glory that we might let go. Let go of all the things that keep us from you. Let go of all the things that we long to have and that we put a white knuckle grip on and so that we must have it and so that if we don't have it, we sin. And if we do have it, we sin. Let us help us to let go and hold all things with open hands so long as we have you, we might be satisfied. That is a big ask. But you are gracious and willing to do it. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.